Welcome to episode 18 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. In today's episode, I talk with Shauna McClure. Shauna recently retired from a 25-year career in law enforcement. Her most recent assignment was with the Omaha Police Department. In my conversation with Shauna, it dawned on me that she's the first female cop I've had on the show. Law enforcement is still predominantly male and only 12, maybe 14% of cops are women, which isn't much different than 25 years ago when both Shauna and I first started out. We discuss challenges women in this career field face when it comes to balancing family and motherhood and the bond that some female officers share. We also talk about some things that could be difficult to hear. Shauna openly speaks about her PTSD diagnosis, her suicide attempt, and the call that broke her. On May 20th, 2015, Shauna responded to a call in which her friend, and fellow officer, Detective Carrie Orozco, was shot and killed in the line of duty just one day prior to going on maternity leave. Carrie's daughter was born premature and after three months was getting released from the hospital and going home for the first time. Having had two premature children who spent 55 and 38 days respectively in the NICU before coming home, I remember how hearing about this case personally impacted me. Shauna shares her lowest point, her suicide attempt, and the support her husband and family have played in her path to healing, in addition to resources like therapy, prescription medication, the organization COPS, Concerns of Police Survivors, and WCPR, the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. WCPR is a program for first responders whose lives have been impacted by their work. It's staffed by experienced first responders, mental health clinicians, and chaplains specifically trained in trauma recovery. It's a residential program that provides an educational experience designed to help current and retired first responders recognize the signs and symptoms of work-related stress, including post-traumatic stress. Shauna's honest and raw account of her dependency on alcohol, mental health issues, and the stigma associated with it isolation and suicide demonstrate her brave and resilient nature. If you find value in this episode, please share it, give us a review, and if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. I'd love to hear from you with questions or suggestions for future guests or topics you'd like to hear about. Welcome to the show, Shauna. So glad you're here this morning. Hi, thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Now, of course, the people listening can't see us, but it's good that I get to see your face while we talk. Right back at you, sister. (laughs) So um, for those tuning in, Shauna McClure, is uh, she was a Omaha police officer. She retired after 25 years of active duty. And her and I met uh, sometime last year, and I'll let her kind of go into how that all transpired. But Shauna is an amazing person, and I told her before we get got started, the reason why I really wanted her on the show, and I'm, I'm very excited that she agreed to be on here, is that she has a really great story to tell. Um, and when I say great, I don't mean that in the way that she didn't experience a lot of hardship and adversity, because she certainly absolutely did. But um, she just has this way of commanding attention when she speaks. She's just so raw and genuine, and I I really think those listening will really, really benefit from hearing her story. So thank you again for 
for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't we just start at the beginning, like I, like I typically do, is just tell us how you decided to get into a career field of law enforcement, because let's face it, this career field is still mostly men. Even 25 years after you started, there's still 12 to 14% of cops that are female. So, so how, how was that for you? What was that path like? So I am a legacy. Mm -hmm. um, my grandfather uh, was a uh, conservation officer in Buchanan County, Iowa. My father was a 37-year uh, veteran with the Council Bluffs Police Department in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So um, I always knew that I was going to be a police officer. That was, of course, if I didn't go to Juilliard and you know, major in theater. Okay. So it was one I can of see it that was, too. It was it was one <laughs> or the other. It was one or the other. You know, that explains police that explains. <laughs> it does. It explains a little bit now about about why your presence is so commanding. I can see that. <laughs> so um I uh, I graduated from high school uh and so I graduated in May and by uh, November of 1996, I was a uh, deputy reserve with the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office in uh, Pottawatomie County, Iowa. And that was at the tender age of 18. Oh, boy. Believe it or not, they gave me a gun and a badge and said, go forth and enforce the law, which seems completely insane to me. But that's what they did. Good for me. <laughs> so, yep. That's incredible. Um, I uh, uh, was with the Pottawatomie County Sheriff's Office for two years, and during that period of time, I uh, started going to college, and I got a uh, job opportunity in the Quad Cities, uh, working private security. And that lasted for about nine months before I got my first full-time gig with the Atlantic Police Department in Atlantic, Iowa, where I spent eight years. Now, it wasn't supposed to be eight years, okay? My plan was to go there and serve my four-year sentence. And by that, I mean... Uh, most small municipalities require their new hires to hire, uh, to sign a contract promising at least four years out of them, knowing that there was a possibility that they would move on to bigger opportunities, bigger, mm -hmm. bigger departments. So I uh, served my, my four-year sentence. And then what happened? Life happened. Life happened. And um, I got married and I had babies and I started thinking things like, this is a great place to raise kids. So <laughs> eight years later, my, uh, my circumstances changed and I decided that it was time to, to move on. Mm -hmm. And so in 2007, I went to the Omaha Police Department, where I spent the next 15 years. Now, I, uh, I, am, I am proud of my 25 years of service, incredibly proud of it. As well, you should be. So um, 
yeah, I, uh, Omaha Police Department, I spent most of my time uh, pushing a black and white around. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, served mostly in the eastern side of town, pretty much most of my career was served on the eastern side of town, northeast and southeast. And then I ended my career uh, at the Omaha Police Department in Criminal Investigations Bureau. Uh, I was a fraud investigator, so anything that had to do with money, I was I was uh, investigating crimes that uh, had anything to do with any sort of monetary loss. So it wasn't super riveting work. Yeah, we weren't kicking down doors or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's still important work, was, But it was good work. It was good work. It was good, solid investigatory work. (laughs) So I want to ask you a question because, you know, I was just thinking about this. I I know a lot of female cops, but you're the first one to come on the show. Oh, right on, man. Yeah, and you're you're not going to be the last. But so let's just stop for a minute and, and talk about what it's like to be a female cop and to be a mom and to balance family and work and, and what that was like, if you don't mind, because it yeah, just kind of sure. dawned on me that, that, you know, you're the first person that we can talk about this with. So. Okay. So let's see, let's go back to, to Atlantic. Um, so here's a story for you. Okay. So here, here is a huge difference between a male police officer and a female police officer with children. So, <clears throat> I have uh I <laughs> I have my first baby. Okay. And I did uh my my 6 weeks of maternity leave and when I came back to work, Jackie is her name, went to daycare. Mm-hmm. And so I spent every break going to daycare so that I could breastfeed. So I had to take off my uniform shirt, take off my bulletproof vest, take off my duty belt so that I could breastfeed my baby. (laughs) So so, um, a crazy thing was that I only got to breastfeed for, oh, I don't know, not even a month. I, I was only able to breastfeed. Come to find out, I, my milk supply was um basically strangled by my bulletproof vest Mm, so it's just like it was I was bound like that and so I was only able to breastfeed for about a month so there's a huge difference right there definitely and you know I can relate I'm really glad that you just you know put that right out there because it's something to consider. And I know that Mm -hmm. things have changed since you and I had our kids when we were trying to navigate our careers, but, but right, like having to wear that kind of equipment and how that can hamper and impede our, you know, our hormones and and being able to do that for our children if we choose to. And I got to tell you, like I, at the time when I had to breastfeed, I had to pump Mm -hmm. and I worked at night and literally would pump while listening to the radio and being in like a closet, it wasn't even like a true <laughs> locker room, you know. Right? And so I think yeah. Now they have nice. Way. Now they have lactation rooms with like <laughs> meditating music and rocking chairs and stuff. I didn't have that in our day. No, you you found a closet or a bathroom <laughs> stall, and you got comfy in there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'm so glad you said that because that's that's something that 
guys don't have to think about that, no. right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, I would, um, you know, night shift. But whenever I had to work night shift, I'd have to come home and, you know, get the kids up while I was working and get them put together and get them to daycare so that I could sleep for a few hours and then come back and pick them up and then be a mom and a wife for a few hours before I had to turn around and hit the streets again. So it was you know, very, very much these sort of alter identities between being a mom and a wife and taking care of my babies and taking care of my husband and taking care of my house and then turning around and having to go out and, like I said before, push a black and white around and be a police officer. Yeah. And to kind of add to that, I don't know if you've mentioned this yet, but your husband is also a law enforcement officer. So my husband is a law enforcement officer. My ex-husband was not. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. I knew you were married to a cop now. So. <laughs> so that probably even made it a little bit more interesting because I know a lot of first responder couples, you know, manage it and, and each one kind of understands because they're both having the same type of career. So that, that even adds a whole new perspective. Absolutely. And especially if you have a spouse who doesn't support that career, which was my situation at the time, um, it made things a, a lot more difficult, especially if I had to work overtime, if I got held over or if I got hurt or, you know, any, you know, any of the unpleasantness that comes along with the job, I, I didn't have support from the person that I should have had that support from. So that yeah. made it that much more difficult. Uh, yeah, I can't even imagine. This career is hard enough. And without having support at home or even from extended family, is is got to add just another layer of stress on top of everything else. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about the different um, positions that you held or assignments that you had during the during your course of your law enforcement career. So let's fast forward a little bit. And, and now you're married to your husband is still a law enforcement officer, right? Yes. Yep. He is a uh, canine handler with the Council Bluffs Police Department in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Okay. And you recently retired. I did. Congratulations, yes. by the way. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's uh, it was um, it was the absolute best choice for me. 25 years of, of service. It was um, it was time for me to. First of all, focus on myself and my my health, my mental and emotional health. And I truly felt called to move on to a, a, a different career path. Um, I will always be blue, but it's time for me to, to use what I've been through and put that towards something that's going to be not only rewarding for me, but rewarding for my fellow first responders. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, 
you know, it hasn't been easy. It, I'll be honest, it was not my, my first choice. I, um, I struggled with the decision for a long time before I took the leap. And now that I have, I, um, I would be lying if I told you I didn't miss some aspects of the job, but um, I know that leaving the job was the right thing to do. Well, I appreciate you being so honest in that because I think that there are so many cops right now and other first responders for that matter that I think are struggling with the same things and the same potential decision about, should I leave? Should I retire? Should I do something else? And, um, you know, if, if you don't mind kind of going into, or kind of telling us more about what I I know it was a gradual decision, obviously, but, but what sorts of things led up to bringing you to the point where you are today, where you decided that it was time. So, um, I think that, um, the, the first thing that I will mention that I will talk about um, is my PTSD diagnosis. Um, I was uh, diagnosed with PTSD in 2017. Um, in addition to insomnia and uh, alcohol dependency, and I have uh, I have struggled with. Uh, with that diagnosis since 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's important to remember is it it was not one incident that was the it, it was the culmination of years of law enforcement, of personal tragedy, of mommy and daddy issues and sad little girl issues. And it was all of those things over the years that led me to my breaking point. And have you ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? I have. Okay. So you remember the scene with the big boulder, right? where he's running in the cave and there's the big boulder who's chasing after him. Well, May 20th, 2015 was my big boulder. Mm. Um, On that day, uh, Detective Carrie Orozco of the Omaha Police Department was shot and killed in the line of duty. Mm -hmm. I was one of the first uniform officers to respond to the scene. Um, I was also a trained EMT, so I had medical equipment with me, and I provided um, life-saving measures to try to resuscitate Carrie. Um, Ultimately, I was not successful, and um, Carrie died in my arms. Mm. Wow. And... It was the, it was the moment that broke me. Mm. It was, it was the boulder that sent me over the edge. It was the boulder that, that rolled over me. 
And I'll tell you, Wendy, I, in that moment, I, I changed. I became a different person. When I tell you that I broke, I mean, I broke, man. I broke. And nothing was the same after that. And I, uh, I tried. I, I really did try. I, um, I was a good patient. I went to my head shrinker appointments. I took my medication. But if I was being honest with myself, which I wasn't at the time, I was going to my head shrinker appointments, sure, but I was telling them what they wanted to hear. Um, I was telling me what I needed to hear. Well, and I think it's really easy for cops to be able to do that. That's, Absolutely. I mean, it's really easy for us to tell them we know what they want to hear. Yeah, especially if there's if there's an end game and the end game is you telling me that I'm A-OK and I can go back out and, and do my job, then I can play the game. And that's what I was doing. I was playing the game. And I was taking my medication, sure, but I was over-medicating. And I was self-medicating with booze. I swam down to the bottom of a bottle and I hung out there for years, mm. for years. I, um, you know, I can remember coming home from my head shrinker appointments and <clears throat> making a stop at Hy-Vee and I would pick up my, like, you know, like thick beer, like you could cut it with a spoon, thick beer. And I would start out with that on my way home. And then I would finish that off. But then I would switch to something lighter because somehow in my mind at the time, my rationale at the time was that if I have this, you know, 8% alcohol early in the day, and then I switch to a lower percentage alcohol later in the day, Somehow, somehow in my mind, that was healthy. <laughs> somehow that was healthy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I did that for years. I, I lived that way for years. And um, it all came down to February 2018. And um, I had a, a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, I had successfully pushed away every important person in my life. I was abusive to my husband um, emotionally, verbally all in an attempt to make him hate me because if he hated me, then after I was gone, it was going to be easier for him to get over it. I pushed my family away. 
I alienated my family. I berated my family. I alienated my children. All in an attempt to make myself as alone as I could possibly be. And I woke up one morning after a horrible, drunken lashing of my husband. Um, I told him I hated him. I told him that I wanted a divorce. I told him that I wanted him to get out. And when I woke up the next morning and he was gone and I was alone, I realized that I, I, it was a success. I was alone. And what was left to do but kill myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember sitting on the kitchen floor with my service weapon in my lap and um, the thoughts that went through my head were, um, I can't do it here because I don't want to make a mess here. You know, I'm going to have to go somewhere else or I'm going to have to go outside or, you know, I, these were the thoughts that were going through my mind. And as these thoughts are going through my mind, I had a thought flash, dear God, I hope that Ken comes home to me. I had a moment of hope. Um, and that, that was all that I needed was just that glimmer of hope. Please let him, please let him come back. Mm. Um, so I got up and I put my gun back in the locker and shortly thereafter, Ken came home and, um, uh, I told him, I said, I'm, I'm sick. There's, there's something, there's something wrong. And I, um, begged his forgiveness and, um, I will never forget what he said to me. He said, I forgave you the moment you said it. <laughs> mm -hmm. oh. So after that, everything changed. Mm -hmm. After that moment, I, I stopped going through the motions. Um, Ken and I started going to counseling together and I started to truly accept the help that was being offered. I, I reached out and grabbed a hold of the hands that were being extended down the hole that I was in to pull me out. And um, I did not do it alone. I did not come back from that darkness alone. It was, it was very, very much with the help of my support system, which by the grace of God, I had because I, I was so proficient at being such a horrible person that I could not have expected anyone to forgive me. But 
they did. And they loved me through it. Now, I, I tell you that, but the the truth is I not everybody forgave me. Um, and that's, that is incredibly difficult to this day. Um, I, I lost a sister. I, I have a sister who will never speak to me ever again. Um, and that, that breaks my heart, but I did that. I, I, I created that situation. And so I have to live with it. But I have, I have very much focused on the people who want me, the people who, who were there for me when I needed them. And I have truly a, a new lease on life. I am not the same person that I was before. I have put a great deal of work into not being that person. Well, and I can tell you that I am personally grateful that you survived that suicide attempt because you. you are such an incredible, strong person. And wow. I mean, I just, I have chills and I'm, I'm kind of speechless. It's just amazing that you overcame that such courage and strength and bravery to overcome that and come from such a low place and just to see and hear where you are today. I think it's truly inspiring. So thank you for, for sharing that. Absolutely. Thank you for giving me the platform to do that. Oh yeah, of course. Um, one question I have. So I think unfortunately more first responders than we want to admit or even know um, can relate to what you're saying for different reasons and everybody's got their own backstory. What advice would you give someone who's considering taking their own life? Oh my God. Uh, where do I begin? Um, you know, there's the, the, the typical responses. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's a selfish decision. You're going to, you know, all, all the things that you're supposed to say, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I, I've been there. I've been in that darkest moment when none of that stuff mattered, when the only solution left is suicide because nothing else makes sense. And I'm here to tell you that the darkness that you're in, that is a lie. That is not your life. That is not who you are. We are not alone in this. And when you're in that, that hole, in that darkness, you can't see 
all of the people who are around you, who love you, who, who want you to overcome, who want you to be there. You can't see it until you reach up and you grab a hold of the hands that are being extended and you start pulling yourself out of that hole. But you can't do it alone. You can't. I tried. I I tried and you can't do it alone. Yeah, because what screams out at me when I hear you, you know, talk about what led you to your attempt is just isolation. Yes. You isolated and, and you know, you felt shame and um, you pushed people away. And that's just unfortunately such a common thing that I, I see other people do. And I'm not saying that they're at the brink of taking their own life, but I think a lot of first responders do that because they think that they're the only ones mm -hmm. that are experiencing what they're experiencing. And Absolutely. that's why I think it's so valuable for you yeah. to, and I know it's not easy and I appreciate it. It's, it's not easy yeah. to talk about this, but, um, believe me when I tell you it, it's, I know it's going to make a difference. I hope so. One thing I, I want to ask you about, and then we can kind of move forward, because I'd, I'd like everybody to hear about your healing path, because you've got some incredible support, like you mentioned. Not only um, on 2015, you said that was when you broke, but I want people to understand that not only was that just a call for you, that was your friend. Yeah. Um, and I know if, if um, it's anything like it is here with my agency, and we there's not a lot of women and a lot of times we're close we become friends we're not just co-workers you know we're mothers we're daughters we're wives and we we have a special bond so i know that from talking to you in the past that was something similar to what you had with your friend yeah carrie was a friend um you know i can you know, I can remember going to the call and being prepared to render aid. I had been in that situation before mm -hmm. and I was prepared to do it again. I was not prepared to see Carrie laying there. Mm. Did you know that it was her no. when you were on your way? Okay. Wow. No, it wasn't until I arrived um, made my way through, through the, the crowd of people that were already on scene, um, and saw her there. Mm. Yeah. And, and you and I've talked about this before, but you know, it's always unimaginable whenever we lose anybody in the line of duty, but that particular incident, um, although I didn't know her and obviously didn't know you at the time, that really impacted me personally because uh, her circumstance, she had a child in the NICU. That's right. She was just about to start maternity leave because her child was going to come home. Both of my daughters, same situation for me. They were born premature and were in the NICU. I went back to work and then when they got out of the hospital, went home. And so, you know, just like everything else, you know, when something's more personal, it impacts us more. So absolutely. That, that incident um, is something that stays with me as well. And, and so thank you for sharing. Of course. So let's talk about your path to healing. So you decided you're like, I'm done. I've got to reach out for help. What was, what was that like? You talked about therapy with your husband. Mm -hmm. What are, what are some of the other things that, so that you I, did? 
I can't, uh, I can't emphasize enough how important therapy is. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to have someone you trust that you can go to and say, hey man, this is this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on inside of my mind and I'm having trouble sorting it out. You know, I can't I can't begin to to tell you how important therapy has been for me. I continue therapy to this day and I'll probably always continue therapy, let's be honest. Um and and com- to be completely honest, medication. Mm-hmm. Um getting on the right medication has made a, a huge difference. Um because you know, not only am I dealing with a PTSD diagnosis, not only do I deal with alcohol dependency and insomnia, but I was recently diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And um, that was that was a big shock for me at the time, but um, because there's such a stigma that is connected to bipolar and PTSD and mental health disorders in general. So it was difficult for me to sort of admit to myself, hey, you have all of this going on. You need something that is going to regulate these symptoms. And And one thing that's important, and I don't mean to interrupt you, is that what you said is very important, and I want to make sure that we emphasize this. Um, A diagnosis of being bipolar, PTSD, should be no different than someone being diagnosed with a medical condition, like cancer, like heart disease, like, you know, whatever, uh, diabetes. and. And we don't still look at it like that, but part of why it's so important for you to talk about this is so we remove that stigma and people understand that. Absolutely. You, you hit the nail on the head because if you've got diabetes or you've got cancer or you've got any number of, of physical ailments, you're going to treat that, right? You're going to, you're going to deal with that, you know, because if you don't, you're going to die. So you do the things that you need to do to be healthy and you have to do those same things when it comes to your mental health as well. Yes, definitely. So once I wrapped my mind around that and once I wrapped my mind around wanting to be healthy and got myself on a a medication regimen that, that regulated me, I, it, um, it made things a lot easier to to focus on it made things a lot easier for me to to deal with i wasn't so i i didn't feel this you know the the overwhelming sense of i'm drowning mm. so therapy medication but truly i think that one Two, two, two things um, outside of, of 
medication and uh, treatment and my family, uh, two things were were big turning points for me. One was uh, concerns of police survivors. I started going to um, co-workers weekend retreats. Um, they're once a year. It's for a weekend. And you are surrounded by law enforcement officers who have had a similar experience as you have had. And there is such a feeling of belonging mm. in that. Um, particularly, you know, that first year that I went, um, I was so convinced that I am the only one who has ever felt this way. No one has ever felt this way. No one has ever had these feelings. No one has ever dealt with this. I am completely alone. <laughs> but when I went to my first coworkers retreat and I realized we are all telling a different version of the same story. The names and locations may have changed, but truly we are we're we're telling the same version or a different version of the same story and we're all going through a uh a, 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 going down a similar path we're all dealing with similar feelings and that that feeling of of belonging that feeling of no longer being alone that was a huge turning point for me. Um, but it wasn't until November of 2020 when I went to my first WCPR retreat, mm -hmm. West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, that I started making some serious admissions. I, um, so just to give you, I, I know, you know, but for the listeners, so WCPR is a intense week long retreat for first responders who have suffered trauma and, um, when I say intense, I mean intense. There was, uh, yeah, it wasn't like a retreat where we go on hikes and, you know, we become one with nature. No, it was <laughs> nothing like that. It was, it was, uh, it was locked down. We're talking about your feelings, whether you like it or not. It was intense. And I think that that word retreat is a little deceiving. It's incredibly <laughs> deceiving. Incredibly. They should call people it. People might not go if they called it right? something else. They know? should they should call it West Coast post-trauma lockdown. <laughs> 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 but when I went into it, I was I was completely taken aback. Mm -hmm. I mean, like night one, they start picking the scab, man. And they're relentless. And so I had to, to, to have a conversation with myself because the, the big voice was saying, pack your bags and 
get out of here. But, you know, the, the, the little voice in the back, you know, was saying, you're only going to get out of this what you put into it. Mm-hmm. And you, ha- you know, you're going to have to trust this process because others have come before you and they have been successful. You can be successful too. You can walk away. Either you, either you can walk out of here having gained nothing but a chip on your shoulder, or you can walk out of here having gained a whole new insight. And it, it took me probably three days into the retreat to truly give in to the process. I had my, I had my aha moment. I had my, I had my magical aha moment. Um, and once that happened, it, it started opening up new doors in my mind. It started, it, it started giving me realizations that I had suppressed or I wasn't ready to deal with. I wasn't ready to talk about even after all of those years. Um, one of the major things uh, that I had to, that I chose to, I didn't have to, I chose to come face to face with um, was my my dependency on alcohol mm-hmm. and just how impactful that has been on my life. And um, the other thing that I looked at that I really looked at was the fact that um, my career as a law enforcement officer was over. Mm-hmm. And I had to come to terms with that. And, you know, it's, it's not that WCPR um, is there to sway you one way or the other, you know, keep, keep working or don't keep working. It was, it was, like I said before, picking off the scab because, you know, we're putting a a bandaid on a bullet hole and you're not going to heal that way, but, you know, when when you've when you've ignored it for so long when you've when you've suppressed it for so long that becomes comfortable that becomes normal and when somebody gets in there and starts pulling out all the infected parts well that hurts and you don't want to do that because you've been just fine with it festering for years for me but once you get down to the root of it and you start that true healing process then it gives you the room to look at things from a broader spectrum as opposed to you know looking at it in a in a narrow spectrum you can finally see the forest for the trees because you back up and you can see it well and i think what you described 
earlier about the voice in your head, <laughs> about just wanting to run that first day. Um, I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people have that same feeling. And I just, I think it's so cool how you described it. And that's one thing is, is so great about you. You're so articulate. You have such a way <laughs> with words and explaining these things that there was just that glimmer of hope that you talked about earlier. And there was something that told you, no, I need to stay. I know I can do this. And that that's just so inspiring for people who are listening, who are in a similar situation. Like there's always, there's always hope and there's always support. Always, always. So if someone listening wants to, um, you know, reach out for resources and they're thinking about WCPR, because I know you've continued to be I in have, touch. With, I have. Yeah. As a peer, as a peer, and you, you have gone back to help. Um, how, talk a little bit about that process, like having gone through it and then coming back and be able to give back to others. What, what's that like? If somebody is listening, who might be interested in thinking about going. Okay. So if you're interested in going, go. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. You should go. Because, and, <laughs> And there are multiple locations. I think it's worth yes. mentioning. WCPR started in California, and mm -hmm. that's still where they have the most uh, different "quote unquote" retreats. But but they're all over the country now. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I went to one in Linwood, Kansas. I went to mm -hmm. another one in Fremont, Nebraska. Yeah, you know, they're all over the place now. I, I, they should change the name. <laughs> <It's> deceiving. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but yeah, if if you're if you're thinking about going, if you, if you feel like you could benefit from something like that, absolutely go a hundred percent. I'm, I'm one of their biggest cheerleaders now, now, particularly that I had been on both sides of the spectrum. Sure. Yeah. I have been both a client and I have been a peer and being able to see it from both sides. It's it paints this amazing picture, you know, because I, I, um, I think personally, I, I feel like it's important for peers to have also experienced being a client. I think that is, I think that it gives you that much brighter of a picture of what WCPR is. And so when, when I was a client and I was asked later on down the, you know, later on at the end of the week, I was asked to come back and be a peer. And I can't tell you how validating that was. Um, to one, feel like in such a short time, and I know it sounds ridiculous that you that you're able to have a a transformation, if you will, in five days. But I am here to tell you, you'll have a transformation in five days. <laughs> <laughs> um, I won't give away any any secrets or anything for people who are who are uh, thinking about going, but it works. Mm -hmm. And so you know, on that that Friday. I was asked to come back as a peer and it, it, like I said, it was so validating that I had put the work in and I was going to come full circle 
And that is have having experienced that. It was incredible, man. It was, it was, it's been, it has been an incredible experience with WCPR. So speak a little bit too, because you're already talking about it, the power of peer support, because really for people who are listening, and again, we're not going to give all the secrets away. There's definitely clinicians and, and therapists that are involved in this process, but there are a lot of peers, not non-clinicians, like peer support personnel and, and speak to, if you don't mind, just how helpful that has been, because that's the role that you now play when you go back. So peers are people who have been there, people who have experienced what you have experienced in some way, shape, or form. Someone who gets it on a level that no one else can. Someone who can relate to you on a level that no one else can. And that brings with it a feeling of safety, mm-hmm. a feeling of trust. And I think... I think that the the role of peer is so incredibly important because particularly when you first come on as a peer, you're still dealing with a, a lot of the the client feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember sitting in the room uh, during one of the sessions and I couldn't help but reflect on my own stuff. And I was brought to tears and like, whoa, 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 hold on, you know, suck them back up into your eyeballs because it's not about you, sister. (laughs) Well, it it isn't completely about you, but yet it is. And that's why it's so great for peers to come back because it's healing in its own right to be a peer. Yeah. And, you know, what I learned was I think that there's there. They talk, to, they talk about this during the session. They talk about how when you first come back as a peer, you're like you know, 25% peer and 75% client. And I, you know, it made me feel so much better. It's like, okay, all right. So it's okay if I'm feeling the feels. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm okay if I feel the feels. So, you know, I don't have to be stoic. I don't have to, you know, ignore the way that I'm feeling. This is completely normal. And it was great being able to go back as a peer and sort of relearn and, you know, see the material from a different perspective. Because I can remember being like, I don't remember talking about this (laughs) because I was such an emotional, you know, puddle of goo the entire time I was there as a client that you know, I really got to learn more and experience more as as a peer. Yeah, and I imagine that every single time you go back, you will continue to learn and have new insight. Um, and I just think that's probably the way it's going to be for the rest of your life. Same with anybody. Yeah, absolutely. So besides WCPR and your involvement with COPS, mm-hmm. um, would you mind telling everybody a little bit about what you're doing now? Because we talked yeah. a little bit about what what your new venture is. So I uh, have decided to go back to school. Yay. I went back uh, 
my, so I am, when I say go back to school, I mean, I'm pretty much starting from square one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, you know, I, I was, uh, I pinned on the badge at, uh, at 18. And so, um, I didn't have much time for, for school. Sure. And, and that worked for me back then. So now I have decided to go back to school and uh, I am going to be a counselor. I'm going to be a counselor for first responders and their families. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, you are going to be, that's going to be so great. Oh, for the people you. who get to be your clients, they are so lucky. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. That means a lot. And you're still living in the same area and your husband, you know, you're, I'm assuming you're going to stay there until he's ready to retire. Any plans to move anywhere else or? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe someday we'll build us a little log cabin in the mountains. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm all about people who I know that are clinicians in particular with first responders, like, Hey, why don't you try to have an office like out in nature, like in the woods or I something know, like that? Right? That would be perfect. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Shauna, it has been, Oh, my pleasure and honor really to talk to you. Oh. And I uh, just want to give you an opportunity. Is there something else that, I mean, we covered a lot, mm -hmm. um, but that you want to make sure people hear or know? So I'd like to tell a story real quick. Go for it. You're okay. so good at that. Okay. 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 <laughs> so um, in May, Washington, D.C. Um, has an onslaught of law enforcement officers mm -hmm. who converge upon Washington, D.C. during National Police Memorial Week. Now, if you are a law enforcement officer and you have not been to National Police Memorial Week in Washington, D.C., you better put that on your bucket list because it's a must. You got to do it. So during uh, during National Police Week, they have a place called Tent City. And that's exactly what it is. It's like five city blocks of tents. And inside the tents are, you know, every kind of swag from, you know, duty bags to patches to T-shirts to cigars, you name it, it's in there. Every kind of cop swag you can imagine, it's in there. And in the center of it, there's a big beer tent. So on this particular night, and this is this is the year that um, we honored Carrie Orozco, we, that Carrie Orozco went on the wall. And, uh, you know, it's, it's during this, this period of time when, um, you know, I'm feeling very alone and very isolated. And as we're we're standing there in tent city, all of the sudden, a group of bagpipers start to play Amazing Grace. Now, if you want to shut about a thousand cops up on a dime, you get some bagpipers to start playing Amazing Grace. And here's what happened. So they start playing Amazing Grace. And as it happens, everybody stops and raises their cups like that complete silence throughout the crowd and everybody's got their cups raised and as it's playing and as I'm looking into the crowd, what I start to notice is these t-shirts, t-shirts from New York memorializing their fallen officers from California, from Missouri, you know, 
state by state by state. They're all standing together, shoulder to shoulder, with their arms raised. And I had this aha moment that we are not alone in this. We are all together in this. And if you ever feel like you are doing this by yourself, I am here to tell you that this is this is a family that no one wants to be a part of. But once you are, you don't want to be apart. Because we have got each other. We are taking care of each other and we are here for you and we want to help you. So never ever feel like there's no one there because we're there and we get it and we want to be there for you. So well said, Shauna. And one thing I would add is not only are we not alone in this, but we're actually better together. Amen. And we are alone. So, well, thank you so much. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed talking to you. Same to you, Wendy. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you find value in this episode, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. I'd love to hear from you with questions or suggestions for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear about.